Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? A survey released earlier this year revealed that evangelicals are going through a dramatic slide from orthodoxy. The survey discovered that a full 43% of evangelicals believed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. When I first heard this, my jaw dropped, but that wasn't all. It also discovered that about 38% of evangelicals believe that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not a matter of objective truth, suggesting that the average evangelical is thoroughly postmodern. One last example. It turns out that most evangelicals are actually universalists. They were asked, does God accept the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam? And again, 56% of evangelicals agreed with this. I'm certain I wasn't the only person deeply disturbed by this, because when we look at the landscape of evangelicalism, we are dividing and fighting over secondary matters. We're arguing over sex and gender and race. But when it comes to primary matters, the divinity of Jesus, the fact that he is the only way to know the Father and enter into the resurrection, the idea that what's inside of the Bible is objective truth, not a subjective opinion, these are essential beliefs that Christians have agreed upon for millennia, and yet it turns out that amongst those fighting over these secondary issues, we don't have agreement on the primary things, on the central things. And so this has led me to believe that maybe it's best not to focus all of our time on these secondary questions and instead return our attention to what matters most, what is at the core of our faith in Jesus Christ. In his recent book, Thrill of Orthodoxy, Trevin Wax makes that exact point. He's arguing that we need to do some theological triage. We need to remember what essentials unite us and why those essentials are not just important, but beautiful, good, and true. Trevin Wax is the Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Missionary Board, and he's also a visiting professor at Cedarville University. Let's hop in. Trevin, it's great having you on the podcast today. Good to be with you, man. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed your latest book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. But my guess is anyone who hears that title might be thinking, well, orthodoxy doesn't sound all that thrilling to me. Because the truth is, when we talk about topics like doctrine and orthodoxy, a lot of people's eyes start glazing over. It doesn't always feel relevant to daily life. And, you know, I actually think this might seem like a strange topic for a podcast like our own because we talk about cultural engagement and we do cultural commentary. Like, what in the world does that even have to do with orthodoxy and doctrine? And so I want to get to that second question much later on in the podcast, but I want to start with a personal relevance question. And this actually comes from a personal story. I was leading a Bible study the other day with a group of people. They're all deeply committed to following Jesus. And we were reading a New Testament passage about the return of Jesus. And one guy in the group says the quiet part out loud, because I'm sure he wasn't the only one thinking this. He said, when it comes to doctrine, I've always struggled with the return of Jesus. It's not that I don't believe it. It's just that I find myself wondering how much it actually really matters. I mean, people are going to die, and so they'll eventually face God's judgment or rest in his grace. And so whether or not Jesus returns doesn't really change my life in terms of practicality and evangelism or a sense of urgency. I just don't get why it's a key belief. And so I want to get to the broader problem of why are we asking those kinds of questions? But let's just start really narrow and say, what would you say to him in response if you were the one leading the Bible study? Because I don't think I gave a great answer, so I need some help here. 
I mean, immediately I think of return slash resurrection because the real important thing to remember about the return of Jesus isn't just the fact that he's coming back, but that he's coming back to restore everything and we're going to then experience the resurrection. So it's one of these things like the return of Jesus doesn't make a ton of sense if you think the whole purpose of Christianity or of human life is just make sure I get to the good place and not the bad place when I die, right? Like if it's all about some sort of a disembodied afterlife, then yeah, the return of Jesus doesn't really make a lot of sense. But if you recognize that all of history is moving in a particular direction, and that at the end of time, when God sort of closes the chapter on the world that we currently live in and promises to make everything new, well, then suddenly the return of Jesus is connected to this broader picture of judgment and restoration that is what all of history is moving towards. So once you see it in that bigger picture, it becomes like how Paul ends with 1 Corinthians 15. He has that whole chapter on the resurrection there's some mysterious parts of that there's some challenging aspects to interpreting that how does he end the chapter he ends up by saying your labor is not in vain you should be steadfast immovable knowing that your work is not in vain why because this resurrection is coming so i feel like the return of jesus if you want to show like the boots on the ground like how it really works you've got to connect it to the resurrection and that bigger picture of what god is doing in the world you're making me think of the, was it Queen, the nothing really matters? I can't, I'm not good at my classic rock. But if it's all just about dying and going to be heaven, there is a sense of which, well, nothing really matters. It's all just the same to me. Like, nothing really matters except for going to Jesus. And am I going to be judged or, you know, rest <laughs> grace, as my, as my friend said. But you're saying, actually, no, it's the opposite. If we get the return of Jesus right, we begin to realize everything really matters because all this stuff is going to last and continue to be, which is really practical. But maybe let's pull back the camera. And I just want you to respond to my friend's under lying concern maybe, which is he'd say, yeah, I get it. Doctrine's important or whatever, but it's really not that practical. We need to focus our attention in churches on what we're called to do and maybe less on how we're supposed to think. I mean, how would you respond to that concern? First of all, I would want to recognize and acknowledge that yes, there are people who focus pretty intently on doctrines, on getting the I's dotted and the T's crossed of what it is they're supposed to believe, and yet don't focus a commensurate amount of attention on how the Christian life is to be lived, like what it actually looks like for us to follow Jesus in our day-to-day. So that happens. And I don't want to deny that that happens. It is possible to be doctrinally sound and yet not practically living out what it is that we say we believe. I think everybody knows someone like that. Why do those things get separated from one another? You know, because it seems like you can find a lot of Christians who are very utilitarian and practical, and we're talking about how to, you know, walk in obedience and live the day-to-day Christian life, but they're not that interested in doctrine. And then you can find your doctrinal Christians who can, you know, get your formulation about the Trinity exactly right, but they don't seem that interested in obedience or at least practicality. How do these two things, like, become separated streams? I'm not sure that they're actually as separated as we think they are. I think actually doctrine and practice are inescapably together. And what I mean by that is when you're really living the Christian life in the way that you talk about practical people, you are doing so because of a set of beliefs and because of the community you belong to and also some of the behaviors that you've inherited or that you've incorporated into your own life. So all of that is swirling around at the same time. It's never completely separate. Now, I think we like to think sometimes that we can separate these things or that one is more important than the other and whatnot. But I think that all of that is always happening together, behavior, belief, and belonging. And I think sometimes we say we believe certain things, but our behavior or the community we belong to could show something else. And then vice versa, like sometimes we'll behave in certain ways that actually show the true beliefs that we have. So for the person who's kind of interested in personal piety, like that's the thing I want to focus on. One of the interesting things you said in your book, and actually I don't know if I've heard someone articulate it quite this way, is that that person is at risk of drifting away from orthodoxy. How does that happen? I can see how other things, like if someone had bad ideas, okay, yeah, of course you're going to drift away from orthodoxy. But how does an emphasis on practicality to the exclusion of doctrine maybe lead towards doctrinal drift? It's not the focus on the practical that leads to doctrinal drift. It's the focus on the practical with the minimization and the downplaying of the importance of doctrine that leads to doctrinal drift. I don't want any Christian to walk away thinking we shouldn't be focused on the practical. I mean, that is a vitally important part of Christianity. And to not focus on the practical would actually be denying, in some sense, denying the Lordship of Jesus. What I'm saying is, if you say that all that really matters is what we do, not what we think or what we believe, that downplaying 
downplaying of what could be seen as theoretical or as the doctrinal beliefs that aren't immediately practical in my day-to-day life, that's what leads to the drift away from orthodoxy. It seems like there's also a different way people can drift. So if on the one hand, I have friends who maybe want to emphasize practicality and piety to the exclusion of doctrine. I've got a different group of friends that want to maybe emphasize social justice. And by the way, it can be social justice on the right or the left. I actually kind of want to highlight that (laughs) to maybe the exclusion of doctrine. So an example of this, I wrote a blog recently and was laying out kind of a theology of worship. And someone replied from the right in this case, why are you wasting your time on this? Look out at our culture. Look at how our culture is dissolving. Look at the wars and the battles that we're having right now. And you're over here talking about our theology of worship. Sure, Surely there's more important things to worry about right now than that. How would you respond to that person? Well, I don't think that you can win sort of a culture war if you don't have a culture yourself. That's the beauty of the church. There's no sense of being countercultural if the church isn't herself a culture, a different culture. So I think when we talk about theology of worship, when we talk about what it means to be made in the image of God, when we talk about, you know, to worship God as three in one and whatnot, all of those are aspects of what it is that we believe. All of those are culture shaping, culture influencing types of beliefs that then lead to the shaping of a particular community that behaves in a certain way. And so what I would tell people, whether on the right or the left, or however they're thinking about I would say the danger is that a cause, even a righteous cause, can push the cross from the center of our focus of what it means for us to be a cross-shaped, cruciform kind of community. And so I do think there's a danger there, even when it's a good cause, of that replacing the cross at the center of everything. And then we wind up losing the ability to be the kind of culture God has called us to be that's actually going to stand out in the culture that we want to also influence. Do you have maybe a concrete example of that? And I could think of this example going one way or the other, a case where the cross is no longer at the center of a culture and instead it's a activist movement. And again, this could be on the right or the left or the other way around to show how maybe a key central doctrine then shapes a particular kind of community so that they go out and do a particular kind of social action together. I mean, I think we can look at lots of examples of that throughout church history. I mean, immediately it comes to mind, you know, what were the actions of the Christians during a time of cultural upheaval, for example, when there'd be the plague or the pandemics during the Roman Empire days? What you had were Christians acting in very unusual ways, not being the ones to flee the cities, but being the ones to actually help nurse those who were sick, and then also some of them dying on account of that, in a sense, because the community that they belonged to, more than the Roman Empire community, the smaller faith community that they belonged to, shaped them in a particular way to be a particular kind of person. I also think if we want to look even closer to home— I don't think this is well known. I haven't seen a lot of news stories on this. I've just seen some things recently. It's partly because I'm close to this community. I live just down the road from where the Covenant school shooting took place in Nashville. But the fact that the Covenant community came together and they covered the funeral expenses and reached out to the family of the shooter, I think is one of the most impressive things that I've seen in recent years as to how this community came together, not only to mourn and grieve the loss and the evil that took place there, but also to bring in the family of the shooter as well. I mean, that's the kind of thing that unless there's a community that's sort of formed in a certain way, that's not the instinct, right? Those aren't the typical behaviors. And yet I recognize there's something massively culturally powerful about a culture that's living in that kind of way to do something that seems so unexpected. Even as you speak, I kind of feel a sense of conviction because it's really easy for me to focus on the posture that people are taking in the quote-unquote culture wars, and to pontificate about either how people are succeeding or failing or whatever else. And what you're saying is, okay, yeah, true, maybe their behavior and their ethics do or don't align with Jesus and his values and his kingdom, and that's an important conversation. But isn't it also just as important to go upstream from there (laughs) and to say, what kind of community are these postures coming out of? And it's interesting because in many cases, they're coming out of internet communities, they're not even coming out of church communities. Then go upstream from there and say, okay, well, what's the orthodoxy, the doctrine that's shaping them. And if you do that full stretch, it's really helpful to me because it's so easy to get fixated on what's happening at the bottom layer and forget what's happening at the core and at the center. And I guess one of the reasons why I feel 
some level of concern is that there is a lack, and maybe this is just me, but I see a general lack of theological and biblical rigor. And this isn't just amongst Christians. I'm seeing it even amongst, you know, what you might call the Christian leadership class, you know, pastors, ministry leaders, Christian leaders. Just as an example of that, you know, I'm Presbyterian. People might not know this, but I had to go through a lot of tests to be ordained. There's written tests, there's small oral tests where you answer questions verbally. And then the last test you take is you come in front of the whole Presbytery. You've got all the pastors, all the elders, and they ask you questions and you have to answer. And it's not infrequent that someone will transfer into our presbytery from a different denomination, and they have to go through slightly different but similar tests. And so when they do that, they'll come before, and I'll be in the room, all of the elders and all the pastors, and they'll be asked questions about their views on topics. And every single time we ask them to articulate their doctrine of the Trinity, which people I would think would expect that's like a easy home run, hit it out of the park. I know the answer to that. In Probably over 50% of the cases, the pastors who are coming in state a Trinitarian heresy <laughs> by accident. <laughs> we'll correct them and say, I think this is what you mean. They'll be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I messed that up. But it just kind of alerted me to the fact like, whoa, you know, we don't even really have theological rigor amongst our pastors in Presbyterian denominations that supposedly take this stuff really seriously. So I, mean, I just want you to weigh in. I mean, maybe it's just my unique experience, but do you think that there is a growing lack of theological rigor amongst Christian leaders? And why is that happening? What are the consequences of that? I'm just curious for your thoughts. Well, I wouldn't want to speak for Christian leaders across the country or the spectrum, because I think it's going to be different region to region, denomination to denomination. I mean, you're in a denomination that takes doctrine really seriously. So if you're noticing a lack of rigor there, that's not a good sign for other groups and faith traditions that actually don't put as much of an emphasis on the certain kind of Trinitarian core, creedal orthodoxy, getting all of those doctrines right. I think one of the reasons, though, why there may be some of those challenges is we do tend to gravitate toward those things that we find immediately perk up the ears of people when we're preaching or are the things that we find immediately practical in day-to-day life. And the Trinity is one of those that actually is more practical than people realize, but you got to work harder to show where the connections come from. And so that's one of those areas where I think if there's been a lack of attention given to it over the years, it's because we've not connected the dots for how this actually does show up in our life. And not only just in our life, also our worship. I mean, at the end of the day, the Trinity matters because it's God we're talking about. Like getting God right, according to his revelation, according to how he has shown himself to be, like that really matters. And it should matter if we really want to worship him, not just if we want to work for him. You're making me think about a story. Maybe I shouldn't share this on a podcast. I think I've got the details right, though. My father-in-law is an amazing guy. He was singing in the car with his daughters when they were little, the song Brown-Eyed Girl. And he said to one of his daughters, you're my brown-eyed girl. And daughter replied, I have green eyes, Dad. <laughs> Which is <laughs> such a funny, it's like one of those funny family stories that gets told every now and then. But it kind of illustrates the point of, hey, I want you to know who I am. Like, I want you to know my eye color because I'm a person. And knowing me is part of knowing you know, who I am. And I feel like that's what you're getting as if we're going to worship God and know God and we're singing brown eyed girl. He's like, but dude, I got green eyes and let's get past the girl part. There's a problem there. So can you dig into that? Because you talk about that in your book, that part of why we should care about doctrine is because God is a person. Yes. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to show in the book is that at the end of the day, worship is what is transformative of our life. We're all worshipers. I'm sure you've heard it talked about. I mean, it's one of the reasons why idolatry is so pervasive in our lives is because our worship gets misdirected. And so obviously God takes very seriously the right worship of himself as God, as he has revealed himself. You see that through the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. But at the end of the day, wanting to understand who God is and step deeper into his revelation of himself is a way of coming to know him, coming to know him and love him. And it's a matter of love. It's not a matter of passing a Bible test or winning the game of Bible trivia. It's about knowing the God that we're called to love and serve, knowing Him better, and getting a greater glimpse into the greatest, most astounding, most beautiful being in the universe. So, like, how can that not be, at some level, life-transforming if we're talking about our feelings, our emotions, our affections for the one who has made us and redeemed us, and then sharing, and not only revealing himself, but then calling us into, I mean, I was working yesterday on a column about John 17. I mean, the thing that just astounds me about the prayer that Jesus prayed on the night before he died was that he was praying that we would be one, not just so that as God's people, we can sort of 
be a good witness to the world that we get along, but that we get along in him, in God, that we are one the way he is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. It's this invitation into the participation of the divine love of God. It's the pulsating heart of the universe. How can that not be important? We may not give as much attention to it as we should, but it doesn't make the heart any less important, just like the heart of the body is no less important just because we don't think about the heartbeats that we have every day. I think some people might expect a book that's saying, hey, orthodoxy is thrilling. We should love, you know, learning doctrine. (laughs) You might come to the conclusion that this is going to be yet another book that kind of says your life begins with your mind, then it goes to your heart, and then it goes to your hands. But you said something in there. You said worship is really at the core. Worshiping God as he is is what shapes us into the kinds of people and the kind of group of people that he wants us to be. And I love keeping worship at the center of this because it is. It's about having a passion for God and knowing him as he is and encountering him as a person who can be known and loved and cherished. And it's convicting to me because running a podcast about cultural commentary and yada, 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 whatever else, it's really easy to lose the worship at the center of that, to get fixated on whatever issues people are talking about at the moment and forget that however we respond to those things, however we live into those things, it starts with worship and it starts with him, which is part of why I wanted to have you on the show. I want listeners of our podcast, not just to be passionate about, you know, what's happening in culture, but to be passionate about Jesus, (laughs) to be passionate about God. If we got people listening, like, okay, I've never really taken taken doctrine, orthodoxy, theology seriously, where do they start? What's their next step to say, hey, I want to dig deeper into who God is? I would want to say start in community with other people who are on a similar journey or people that spark an interest or already have an interest in something like this. So find some people around you that have sort of discovered that thrill of orthodoxy and really do care about doctrine and start with them. Because I I could point immediately to a lot of authors that have done that for me. But when I think about the most formative experiences of my life, it's been in community with people who have pointed me to authors like that. So I could say, go read Dorothy Sayers, you know, go read G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and people like that, John Stott and some of the greats. And it's interesting that a lot of those voices come from the UK in the last century. But what's fascinating about them, if you look at those voices, is how embedded they were in particular communities that led to sort of that discovery and definition of orthodoxy and that thrill of showing Christian truth in a different light. They weren't sort of loners. They were actually embedded in groups. So I would tell people, you've got to start this and you got to be careful that it's not all online. Because trying to find a community... (laughs) Why? Why is that a problem? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, trying to find a community online is going to often lead you directly into sort of just a certain kind of... um, you know, I mean, people talk about the rabbit hole or whatnot, but you could wind up being led astray, actually, by a community online of people who just have similar interests or feel a similar passion that you already have. I think anybody who is online has probably not just seen it in themselves, but has clearly seen it in others. It's always easy to see when someone else is doing this. But there's plenty of examples where we see this kind of doctrinal drift happen. And it's not just in terms of kind of our big, central, core, widely agreed upon doctrines. It even comes down to the various doctrines that set apart different denominations and traditions from one another. Like an example that comes to mind is it's been interesting watching people who are part of the Southern Baptist Convention move towards Christian nationalism, in part because historically that's a denomination that's been disestablishmentarian. In other words, (laughs) there are people who say, hey, we want a strong separation between church and state. And it's strange how the internet has now created this group of Baptists who really are out of alignment with the historic movement they purport to represent. But I find your answer interesting because what you're saying is, hey, you need to be in community. You need to be in a church. And part of that makes sense to me because the more we're online and the less we're connected with institutions, the more I think we become fixated on the short term. We become fixated on the immediate. And Yuval Levin's book, A Time to Build, he explores this idea that institutions force us to expand our time horizons because they force the collective to think about how they can preserve the institution and doctrine would be part of that for the church for future generations, extending time horizons, priorities, expectations. Then you compare that to our anti-institutional area, which, like I just said, is plagued by short-termism or what social scientists call recency bias, which is the tendency to assign undue importance to whatever's happening in the moment and losing perspective regarding both the past and the future. And this is kind of what you're describing. This is what social media is. It's a 24-7 news cycle, content cycle. And I just want to read this quote from Yuval and let you respond to it. He writes this. He says, it moves us. He's talking about that social media 24-hour news cycle. It moves us to conceive of success in terms of winning the moment, 
rather than pursuing even medium-term goals. Short-termism makes it difficult not only to plan, but also to worry properly. We can't rouse ourselves to take challenges seriously unless we can persuade ourselves that they present immediate and utterly apocalyptic dangers. I'm curious, I mean, how do you think institutional disconnectedness, you know, and cynicism towards the church, which you said, hey, if you want to take doctrine seriously, you know, get connected with people, how do you think that's causing maybe some of the doctrinal decline, doctrinal drift that you describe in your book? You know, Alan Jacobs talks about this as well, not just Yuval Levin, but I really appreciate the warning against short-termism because it is something that even in community, face-to-face community, churches across the country can fall prey to. We wind up not recognizing that we come from a long line of saints, of forefathers and mothers in the faith that have carried on the gospel and that have had their own particular perplexing challenges that they've had to face. There's a lack of rootedness in a lot of churches. And when you don't have that rootedness, you lose perspective. And the church becomes just another short-term group that's out there with its own particular goals, not even knowing what to worry about because it's not actually thinking long-term because it's lost some of its past. You know, Timothy George, famous Baptist theologian, used to start his church history classes by saying, look, my purpose in this class is to tell you that there were people in between Jesus and your grandmother and that they matter. (laughs) There is a long, long history. The church has existed for a really long time, and there's been all sorts of challenges. And if you look back into the past, you've got this treasure box of things that you can find that will help you in your current moment, and not only help you in your current moment, but help you see your current moment for what it is, rather than just simply being driven by whatever is the trending topic on you know, social media or whatever's happening in the news or whatever the cause of the day is in particular. Like you're able to set things in a particular perspective because number one, you're rooted in the church as we see it throughout history. And then number two, because you're connected to the church around the world that confesses the same Orthodox core Trinitarian beliefs that you do. That gives you a bit of perspective as well, because then you're not just sucked into the vacuum of whatever it is that's happening right now in your particular context. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I agree with what you're saying. I can also imagine someone pushing back and saying, hey, you know, Trevin, I like doctrine too. It must be nice up there in your ivory tower where you get to (laughs) think about ideas, you know, because there are some real urgent issues that we're facing. We're facing issues like abuse. We're facing issues like political syncretism in the church is what I mean. We're facing abuse in the church. We're facing political syncretism in the church. And so if I feel a sense of urgency or what I have just called, I should say, recency bias, there's a reason for it. And so, yeah, I want to talk about doctrine, but surely we need to start here. I mean, what do you say to that? Well, I don't want to lessen that sense of urgency. In fact, I think orthodoxy can actually help feed a sense of urgency there. What I'm talking about is not a lessening of urgency on tackling some of those issues. It's more of a sense of perspective so that we tackle them in the right way, in the way that's going to lead to a healthier church in the future. One of the things I've been saying for the last couple of years is that 
what tends to happen when you recognize that there's a lot of what's wrong in the church, you can call it the rot. If you go into a house like after a flood or something, you find rot in particular rooms or whatnot. You can't ignore that. You can't shield your eyes from that. In fact, one of the things that you have because of church history and the church around the world is you actually have perspective on where things have rotted and need to be addressed. But one of the tendencies of those who are typically more conservative is they'll minimize or defend even the rot in order to want to preserve the reputation of the institution and not want to harm the house in any way. Like the idea of getting in there and getting the rot out looks like it could harm the structure of the house. So we downplay the importance of it. One of the challenges or the tendencies of those who are more on the progressive side of things is to see the rot and then to just want to throw your hands up, walk outside the house, and then blow up the whole thing and try to start over, where you almost blow up the load-bearing walls, the foundational pillars, the foundations of the house to begin with. And one of the things that I think we've got to do if we're going to do well in our generation is we've got to be able to simultaneously remove the rot and fortify the foundations to avoid both of those tendencies that would lead us astray. The problem is you won't recognize the difference between the rot and what's load-bearing or what the foundations are unless you have the church throughout history and the church around the world. So far be it from me to say that I'm up in an ivory tower and we should just lessen the urgency on reforming the church and renewing the church. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying in order to do that well, we need the kind of perspective that comes from church history and the church around the world so that we're able to do that in a way that's actually going to lead to reformation and renewal in the years to come. Yeah, I think that's good wisdom, and it's a good pushback for both sides, because depending on where you lie, it's easy for you to see, for example, how the approach of let's just blow up the whole building cast aside some serious doctrinal foundations. <laughs> and if you're coming from the other end, it's easy to see how you know the rot of abuse inside the church just cast aside some very serious doctrinal foundations. But I like what you're saying, we need to go back, learn from what the church has done historically, and allow that to inform how we remove the rot and strengthen the foundation at once, which is not something you hear people saying. You usually just hear people saying one side or the other. Back to the even bigger picture where you said, hey, if you want to take doctrine seriously, you need to be in community. I said, well, that's a problem because we're living more online, and the more we live online, the more focus on this recent stuff. But I think also the more we live online, the more performative our faith becomes. In other words, our faith is less an expression of the doctrine we've received, the good deposit we've received, and it's becoming increasingly an expression of my particular political tribe or kind of churchianity tribe (laughs) on the internet, far less about doctrine. How do you see that happening on the internet? I mean, you wrote a great blog about the lost boys of Christian Twitter, but how do you see people setting aside doctrine and instead emphasizing the performance of kind of a new doctrine, we might say? Yeah, I don't know that I would say this is really new. I feel like technology is making it easier to do something that Jesus himself warns about all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount. The performative impulse of people of faith goes way back. It's just we've got more tools to do it better and more often. And I think sometimes to fool ourselves into where we don't even recognize when we're doing it. I looked in my own heart on this as well. Like, at what level am I? doing something that is more signaling than substantive. I feel like we're in an era where signaling is what matters. Substance is not. So signaling that you're on the right side of a particular issue or cause is what's more important than actually doing something that would make a positive impact on whatever cause that you're excited about or whatever thing you want to do. You know, like, have you tweeted your outrage over this is more important than actually having done something that might actually address the issue that you're upset about? Because one of them is seen and one of them is hidden or is not as obvious. And so I feel like that is a temptation that has been with us from the very beginning. It's something that Jesus warns about. And that in our current moment, what we're having to figure out is now that this new impulse of performing the faith has somehow arisen, it's that we've got a different cultural context in which it's made it easier and more pervasive than perhaps ever before. I think you're referring to a passage of Matthew 6, where, again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, because I guess that's something people did back then, (laughs) as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. 
Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And it is a really convicting passage. I don't know if this is right. I read it somewhere, though, that the language of hypocrite, applying it this way, something Jesus maybe invented. It came from the field of acting, you know, and so actors were hypocrites. They were putting on a mask for others, which is what they're supposed to do. They're actors. But then Jesus applies this to real life people apparently going around with trumpets, declaring their good deeds. And I do think it's convicting because if you're being honest and if you're online at all, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, very often we aren't just posting things because... We had this pure desire just to post. There's ulterior motives. We want people to respond. We want people to like, to reply, to retweet, to share. It becomes this performative act. It can see someone hearing this thing. Well, then the clear answer is just get off social media. That's the answer because there's no way not to perform on social media. So what would you say? Is that right? For some people, that is the right answer. I've got a friend who was off social media for three years much to the chagrin of people that wanted him to be using his platform for some of the good things he was working on. But he recognized it was bad for his soul and he got off. And he wound up coming back on. He's in a healthier place now. He's not obsessed by the certain metrics and numbers and things that he had been. And he's able to engage in a way that is in a much better place because of that. So far be it for me to say, oh, that's over the top or extreme. Jesus says, when it comes to fighting lust and things, to like cut off your right hand and stuff. So when it comes to the sin, even of performativity and things like that, sometimes you got to take drastic measures. So for some people, that is going to be the answer, at least for a time, perhaps. For others, though, it may not be that you're completely offline or completely hidden or not involved at whatever, but it may be that you've, you know, set particular limits to the amount of scrolling that you can do in a day. You've got people holding you accountable as to what it is you might say or not say. Maybe it's, you know, asking you the motivations for why would you want to say that before you would say it. There are ways of kind of tricking yourself to where you're not going back and looking at things that you've said in the past as to see what numbers are or how many people have liked or retweet. Like there are ways of engaging, I think, that can be healthier, even though recognizing that the pool that you're swimming in is still fetid. It's still toxic. Like you've got to recognize, like Chris Martin, a friend of mine talks about how to do social media well, you're going to have to basically put on your oxygen tank and go into the polluted waters for a time and then come back up. Like you're going to have to recognize it's not neutral, that it is forming you and shaping you in a particular way. And you want to avoid the more detrimental aspects of that formative influence. What a wonderful picture of social media, scuba diving into toxic, stagnant, rotting, disgusting (laughs) water. I agree. You know, I mean, this is a small example. Man, it was probably about a year ago. I made it on my phone so I couldn't see Twitter notifications. That was partially because There was a time when I would tweet and no one would reply to it, so it didn't really cause me much distraction by having notifications on because, generally speaking, there were none. (laughs) But then over time, as I started getting more responses, at first it was, honestly, I can't be distracted this much. But what I found was that it totally just cut out the urgency. I had no idea, you know, are tons of people responding or I just wasn't thinking about it because it wasn't right there on my phone with a little red dot telling me how many notifications. That's a small example of what you're describing. But I think you're right that putting some limits on how we use social media can help out tremendously. One of the things I worry about with myself is that social media is also, I think, training me in kind of a deep form of cynicism. And I'm not just saying cynicism about the church. I mean, clearly you can find people on both sides who are trying to make us, I think, trust the church less in general. What I mean is I always find myself reading things and wondering, what's the real motive here? You know, (laughs) what's really happening in the background behind this particular thing that someone said? And that might not be a bad way to navigate social media, but it's a terrible way to navigate life because most people aren't walking around with, you know, deep ulterior motives performing in front of others. So I'm curious. I mean, is it bad to have cynicism? I don't know how to survive on without cynicism. I don't know. I'm asking you for your advice. (laughs) No one wants to be naive and also no one wants to be cynical. But if you're going to have to be one or the other, I would rather be naive with someone helping speak wisdom into my life than cynical with someone speaking wisdom into my life, because cynical is a posture that leads to a sort of sinful selfishness, whereas naivete is not actually a character problem. I'd rather be without guile than to be completely cynical and full of guile. And so social media can really ratchet up the cynicism levels of our heart, I think, because so many of those performative aspects, we recognize them in ourselves. You know, Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. One of the things that you recognize when you look online and you're cynical of other people's motives is because you know your own motives. Like what I tell people is when they're struggling in that cynicism is to say, hey, take the suspicion you have toward other people's motives and like point that finger right back to your own motives. Because one of the reasons that you may be cynical about other people's motives is 
a lot of times you have ulterior motives. What I try to say is like, take the poison of cynicism and chemo it back on yourself because there's cancer in your own heart. And this can be radiation. This can be something that can actually become helpful in you actually addressing some of the issues in your own heart. I know that's a hard word to hear, but I feel like I've had to hear it in my own life. And I hope that it's helpful for you if you struggle with that, because I do think it's a struggle. And I do think it's something that we've got to consider. And I think it's also why we've got to get out of that filthy pool and into more life-giving streams. Like that's why people say, read old books. And C.S. Lewis talks about the clean sea breeze of the ages flowing through. Like we've got to be able to get out of certain environments and into other environments so that we're able to be shaped by fountains of water that are refreshing and that are actually life-giving instead of life-taking. I think that's true. And it kind of goes back to the broader concern about tradition and doctrine and orthodoxy and the deposit that's being passed down and how that shapes us into the right kind of people to worship God as he really is so that we can be the right kind of people out in the world. That requires an awareness of more than what is urgent and in front of you. If I was going to be totally honest, Keith and I, you know, my co-host, we, we just did an episode about reading and we were both reflecting on the fact that our reading habits have changed dramatically in the digital era. The normal things of we're more distracted, it's harder to sit down with a book than it was 10 years ago, it feels like. But also, interestingly, my reading has become much more present-focused. I find myself reading authors who are writing today much more than I find myself reading authors from the past, which, by the way, was not the case 10 years ago. And I don't think those two things are separated from one another. I think there's part of me that wants to be a part of the conversation I see people having. And I know it's not just true of people who are pastors or preachers or Christian leaders, you know, thinkers. This is true of everybody. We see that recency bias even there. And so I love what you're saying, saying, hey, we do need to reach into the past. And the best place to do that is inside of the church, as messy and challenging as that can be. I know we have a lot of Christian leaders and Christians listening to this. Would you say, hey, go talk to your pastor and say, let's start a reading group. We want to read some theology. I think there has to be some practical steps for people to say to start digging into these ideas. I mean, obviously, they should go read your book, and as I think it'll create a passion in them for orthodoxy. But what would you encourage churches to be doing to reclaim the thrill of orthodoxy? Yeah, I do think reading groups are a great idea. In fact, I know of several groups who have done this with the thrill of orthodoxy. I've gotten to speak into a couple of those. But I just think church leaders need to be thinking about this anyway. They need to be thinking about who it is they're mentoring. Like there ought to be three or four people that are on their mind like year to year that they're saying, I'm deliberately having planned specific time raising up additional leaders and thinkers. And books can be a big part of that. The discussion that comes from great books can be a part of that. I think it was recently I saw a comment made by Brad East, who's a theologian, who was talking about like some of the most formative books on college students today that are going into Christian schools when they talk about the books that have been formative for them. They tend to be people like your C.S. Lewis's and others who themselves were grounded in the riches of the Christian tradition in a lot of ways. And so I would say it really doesn't matter whether the book is really old or really new, even if it's a new book. Is it a new book, though, that has the fragrance of the ancient truths and is grounded, is rooted in something really deep? And so I encourage pastors and church leaders to be thinking about, first, who it is that you see potential in, who it is that you're raising up and mentoring, and what particular books and doctrines and things matter? Like, how does that play a role in how you're training someone up to how to think and what it means to dig deep into some of the, the scriptural conundrums? I have found that people are fascinated by this. The idea that doctrine is old and boring and stuffy and stale, I mean, I guess it can be. But what I have found is that particularly young people, when like our student minister is doing something on particular hot topics, but then connecting them to eternal truths, I mean, the students are all about that. They're all about that. They're not wanting them to come and just do the pizza party and have some kind of quick inspirational devotional for the day. They want to wrestle with the deep text. Sometimes I feel like it's the pastors and church leaders who are more afraid of this than congregations are. People want to go deep in why it is they believe what they believe and what exactly do we believe. Like Those are really important matters that I think we can do better on if we're going to simulate interest in the future. Yeah, you're making me think about one of our staff members, Anna Lynn. She's really taken this home. I mean, she has a theological education. She's incredibly sharp. But she has, I think for years now, been leading people through discussions of John Frame, who's not 
the easiest read in the world if you're not used to reading <laughs> theology. But it's been really cool because she's taking everyday people through John Frame's work, and it's expanding their understanding of doctrine. It's expanding, most importantly, their view of who God is and their understanding of who he is. And that intentionality, I think, is probably bearing more fruit than even she realizes. And it's kind of a challenge to me, right? It's so easy to get fixated on what's happening in the present and not see the past and the broader implications of bringing the past into the present. So I love that challenge. One last thing I kind of want to talk about, I'm going to change gears on us here. (laughs) And it's this, your book came out, I think the same month as our book, Truth Over Tribe. And as I read your book, I thought, oh my gosh, people are going to think that like Trevin and I are arguing with each other. (laughs) And the reason why I say that is, you know, in your book, you talk a good amount about certainty and you, I think, argue that certainty isn't necessarily pride. But if you read our book, you would know that we emphasize what might sound to be the opposite, that in general, it's good to admit when you don't know that we have a serious problem with overconfidence, and we call that pride. And so we suggest that your certainty should always be in proportion to your actual knowledge. So I'm curious, are we disagreeing? I mean, how do we think about this? Because I have to be honest, I do see a problem, not just on the internet, but in general, of people being radically overconfident and over-certain about their views. And it's hard for me not to see that certainty as pride. So I don't know, push back to tell me what you think. First of all, if people read our books and think that we may be arguing, that's not a bad thing. I argue with friends all the time. (laughs) There's a difference between arguments and quarrels. And I think we need more arguments, good arguments, and we need less quarreling. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, online, most of it devolves into quarreling pretty quickly. So this is something I've been thinking about for a while. This idea that to be certain of something is necessarily to be prideful or proud and to see uncertainty as humility I think is a problem because I don't think the Bible talks about certainty that way. I mean, that's certainly not the way that Hebrews defines faith, for example. It defines it in terms of certainty and assurance of some level, although it's a deep and personal assurance. It's not simply a propositional assurance. I think that that's one aspect. The Bible doesn't talk about certainty in a negative light. I don't think throughout church history, certainty has been seen that way either. And so I had to ask the question, what is it about our current moment that seems to see certainty as the problem and would then find the solution to be humility is seen as uncertainty? For me, that's the real issue. It's like seeing certainty and pride as linked together and then seeing humility and a lack of certainty as necessarily being together that I think puts us out of step with the Christian tradition throughout the ages. So I've read your book, but I don't remember exactly how you were defining it. There is such a thing as overconfidence. There is such a thing as our zeal far outstripping our knowledge on particular matters, on us feeling like we are competent and experts on matters that we are not competent or experts on. Like basically social media has made everybody a pundit. So (laughs) I wouldn't deny the fact that there are people that are way more certain and overconfident than they should be on particular matters. And that a good dose of humility or just understanding of our own needing more perspective would be good. I'm kind of pushing back against that tendency, though, to equate certainty and pride, because I don't think that scripture does that. And I don't think that the tradition of the church has done that in the past. I think I hear what you're doing. You're just trying to unbundle certainty and pride and unbundle uncertainty and humility. You can be certain and proud, or you can be uncertain and proud. You can be certain and humble and uncertain and humble, if I'm hearing you right. I think it's hard to do that unbundling. I mean, the example that we give in the book was very early on in the podcast, we had an incendiary pastor named Greg Locke on to talk about basically his views of Christian nationalism. I wanted to real. I went to school with Greg Locke, so there you go. I wanted the real deal. <laughs> uh, and so we had a conversation. And towards the end of that conversation, I brought up COVID because he's a pretty avid anti-vaxxer. And he was saying that the COVID vaccine is made using fetal tissue and that it's going to, uh, I think, genetically modify. There's a number of kind of statements. And, and I kind of pushed back. I said, well, you know, here's some data. Is this what you mean? He goes, no, 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 no. And I said, okay, I just want to know how certain you are of your view, right? And his answer was, well, I said on a scale of one thing, he goes, well, I'm 20 to the millionth power. That's how certain I am. Now, I hear that and I think, well, you're not a doctor. You've clearly read a few articles. I don't understand how you can be that certain. That feels really proud. And so it is hard to unbundle, but I hear what you're saying, saying, well, yeah, but you could also be the opposite of uncertain. You know, I think about, I won't name names, but there's people in kind of the deconstruction camp who have this idea that I'm never going to land on any beliefs and you shouldn't, and you shouldn't be so certain about your ideas, but they're very dogmatic about that uncertainty. And there's a pride that's associated with it. So I actually think you're right framing it that way. And it's 
really helpful. I just think that these are two postures that are really hard to hold together. <laughs> a posture of, I take correcting false doctrine seriously, and at the same time, I need to be meek and gentle and humble. So maybe that's just a great way for us to end. I mean, I'm thinking about Second Timothy. I mean, Paul puts these two things in the same letter, like, Timothy, go after false teaching at the same time, like, don't be quarrelsome <laughs> and right. you know, correct people with gentleness. So how do we put this together, a kind of certainty that's also meek and humble? I don't think certainty is opposed to humility because like, I think the example I use in the book is, you know, I'm not more humble when I struggle to help my son with his calculus homework in high school than I am when I assure my fourth grader that five times seven really is 35. You know, <laughs> there's a level at which I'm not really more proud or humble. I'm not proud by being certain that this is the right answer in a fourth grade math book. Whereas I've got difficulty in struggling through a calculus textbook. It's the recognition that there is a level of certainty and assurance that is foundational for further belief, for further understanding for building on the knowledge that we have as we want to grow. And so what I'm trying to avoid in this conversation about doctrine, true doctrine and false doctrine, is that if you don't come to a particular level of certainty on, let's say, like core Trinitarian orthodoxy, like the Apostles' Creed, like if you're not certain of that, you're never going to build your knowledge base. You're not going to be able to grow further in your understanding of Christianity in a more detailed, more complicated way. Like, You've got to at least have a level of certainty on matters like that for you to be able to grow. The idea that certainty and humility can't be combined is like saying we can't know anything, therefore we can't really build. And I want to say, no, I think we can be humble enough to actually admit that we do know some things and then to begin to build on that. We can know some things about God. It doesn't mean we have a comprehensive, all-encompassing knowledge of who God is, but we can know certain things about God with a level of certainty that allows us to then begin moving deeper. Like humility is not simply coming to a level of certainty on something, it's receiving truth, recognizing we didn't invent it, that we discovered it, and then growing beyond that as we grow in our faith. Humility and certainty have to come together in that way if we're going to actually have intellectual growth be possible. You're making me think about one of the best gifts my mom gave me, which is a foundational belief that the Bible really is God's Word, and it needs to be the measure of my faith, my ethics, everything else. And early on, kind of like the emergent church movement, you know, I was kind of drawn in by some of the people associated with that, and the other asking some questions about, what does the Bible really say about this? But as time went on, each and every one of them seemed to jettison the Bible, or at least come to a point where they were saying that large chunks and bits and pieces of the Bible really didn't apply, or really were a misrepresentation of God, you know, uh, God's allowed sinful people to represent him <laughs> to the world. And that gift that my mom gave me of certainty that, no, the Bible really is the measure. I really can trust God's word actually has allowed me to be humble because I'm submitting myself to the Bible's authority. Whereas those people, I'm not trying to call them proud, but there's a certain pride in saying, I know better than this book that has historically defined <laughs> who Christians are and how they live with one another. And they sound very uncertain in their writing, like, oh, you know, we don't know, and I'm just exploring, and there's lots of doubt and questions, but there's a huge amount of pride that's required to come to those kinds of solutions. And so that's one reason I kind of appreciated your book, because I don't know if we ever actually said certainty is pride, but there's an extreme that you can go to reading even some of the ideas that we laid out in our book that would lead you to believe that any form of certainty is somehow off the reservation for Christians. So anyways, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Just so people know, um, where can people stay connected to you, track with your work? If you go to trevorwax.com, it'll take you to my column at the Gospel Coalition. I've also got a podcast called Reconstructing Faith. We did one season of, which is just looking at the credibility crisis facing the church today with a number of interviews and clips and things. And then I've got lots of books on Amazon and definitely wanting to point people more to books than even to columns and other things, just because that's really what I hope is the fruit of a lot of thinking and wrestling and talking and conversations that happen over the long haul. I think books more than blogs, even though I like blogging, are where I want people to focus and devote more and more attention. I hope anybody listening to this will check out Trevin's latest book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. I really enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed this conversation. Would you just mind closing down our podcast by praying for our listeners? Absolutely. Father, we come before you, and we do come before you with humility and with a sense of um, anticipation that all throughout our life, you're calling us to a greater knowledge of you. 
and a greater knowledge of the salvation that you've given us. And I pray, Lord, for everyone listening, that you would bring people to a deeper knowledge of the truth so that we are able to be the witnesses that you've called us to be in the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.